TBA 21 Academy Radio in collaboration with Mahazef Radio. Eridity Lines, Episode 1 The Keepers and the Thieves of Water Streams. You are listening to Eridity Lines, a podcast series invoking the local ecological knowledges that delicately tread the porous borders between land and water bodies around the Mediterranean Sea. By scientific definition, an aridity line is the line that connects all points with the same average amount of annual rainfall. We are taking this drifting threshold that traverses times and human-made borders as a magnifying lens to read through the social, environmental, cultural and geopolitical impacts of climate change. Aridity Lines is commissioned by TBA21 Academy and co-produced with Radio Maazif. It was conceived by Rim Shadid and Barbara Casavecchia as part of the current three Mediterraneans, thus wave common pairs after Atel Adnan. And now with your host, Rim Shadid. Is it possible that by telling these tales, one might indeed save oneself? My guest for the first episode is the artist Jumana Emil Abboud, who will take us along a water walk she took with M. Jumaa. Together, they walk through the fields and hills, following paths that lead to different water streams in the area, still flowing or long dried out. Jumana narrates the walk through a poetic text, where past and present and the protection of water or its disappearance are constantly intertwined. Jumana lives and works in Jerusalem in occupied Palestine. She uses drawing, video, performance, objects and text to navigate themes of memory loss and resilience. Her interests are in oral histories, the investigation and retelling of personal and collective stories and mythologies, and the links between these stories in both natural and cultural landscapes. Her work often reflects a Palestinian cultural landscape in which the struggle for continuity, amid the wider political context, necessitates a constant process of metamorphosis and ingenuity. In this first episode, we present a space where magic and the supernatural become a grounding way to explore local and traditional ecological knowledges, how these forms of knowledges circulate, and what they can allow us to engender in other ways of being and relating, socially, politically, ecologically, and culturally. Anqinia, where the water walk takes place, is 7 kilometers from Ramallah and approximately 60 kilometers separated from the waves of the Mediterranean Sea. Like much of occupied Palestine's inland regions, this geographical area is directly affected by the rapidly changing climate conditions. Despite its abundance in springs and groundwater reservoirs, it appears to be on the cusp of the ever-shifting aridity line. The whole of occupied Palestine, and what is now called the Palestinian territories, the West Bank and Gaza, is located in a transitional zone, situated between the Mediterranean shores and more arid tropical zones. This area is characterized by both high biophysical and socioeconomic vulnerability to climate change, combined with a limited capacity to respond to its current and future effects. Inhabitants of the West Bank and Gaza are already facing serious challenges in water availability due to the Israeli occupation and climate change, of course. Climate trends, as summarized in the latest assessment report of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, 
indicate that temperatures in the area will rise and precipitation will strongly decline, while high precipitation events, HPE, and prolonged droughts will increase. This will result in even more severe water shortages, flooding, and subsequent serious challenges to food security. In modernizing countries of the 20th century in this region, and especially by the Israeli occupation forces upon occupying Palestine in 1948, efforts were made to try to push back the aridity line by implementing modern irrigation and farming techniques that are now considered potential contributing causes of desertification, as some of the same techniques proved to be overexploitative and unsustainable in the long run. Sea, land, and atmosphere are interconnected elements in the hydrological cycle. Reconceiving colonial narratives also implies reframing our understanding of the condition of aridity. What can we learn about sustainable land and water management, as well as of resilient strategies, from those who traditionally inhabit scarcity and have learned across generations how to exist with aridity and safeguard common resources? Hello, Jumana. Hi, Reem. Thank you for accepting uh, this invitation. Uh, thanks so much for the invitation. I'm really pleased to be part of the program. They were thieves and criminals hiding, she begins, hiding in the cave. They had their guns. He took his gun, and where was his wife? His wife, Sophie, stayed at the wedding celebration obeying the words of her husband to remain and to make it as if everything was all right, although nothing was all right. Her sons, you see, had been slain, and she was expected to go back to the wedding and pretend as if everything was all right. Her husband, he took his gun, and he knew where to find them. How did he know where to find them? Abdel Jabbar, Sophia's husband, knew where to find them, she told me. He went after them. Look, do you see the lemon seller? Is that his car? No, it's not him. The criminals arrived at the cave and hid. I've come for you, Abdishabad warned. And then, my dear, with God's strength, peace be upon him, he shot them all. He shot them all dead, all four. He returned home and comforted his wife. But now, when is it time for us to go to Hajj, he told her. When it's time for us to go to Hajj, Umjuma continued, don't curse the people of Ayn Kenya. His wife didn't listen to Abdijabbar's request, though. Her heart was filled with sorrow and revengeful spirit. Who could blame her? And as she reached the prophet, peace be upon him, the sacred pilgrimage, she made a plea, a curse upon the village of Ayn Kenya. May there remain no more than 70 persons living inside it. No more than 70 pomegranates to pluck above the 70 branches of 70 hearts. Oh, mother, for me they've sharpened their knives and cursed my land. For me, they've cursed the land and fed me no more than 70 pieces of bread. It's December. No, it's July. It's chilly or is it warm? It's a run-down paved street that we cross. 
and we make our way down a short and steep drop passing Ayn al-Balat, spring of the country. We make our way down and then up, and from there we continue to climb up, with our final destination aiming for the source of the water, the source that's called Ayn Abu Atam, or Ayn Imm al Before reaching the source, however, we'd be passing three waters that are directly linked to it. These waters are somehow branching out from the main source across the valley of Ayn Kinia. So in a way, we were, in fact, beginning at the end. With Ayn al-Balad being the last visible destination of the water from Ayn al-Malayun, the mother of all eyes. As they returned home, they found all the people had died. Imagine such a curse, she said to me. I'm breathing heavily as we continue to walk up the hill. I'm thinking that I don't understand why God would fulfill such a curse. I forget to ask her the question. I'm too busy concentrating on my pounding heart. A sign that I'm completely out of shape. We continue walking. I'm not one to speak on God's behalf, out here in this piece of time, but I do wonder, did God believe Sophie was justified in her asking? To this day, no more than 70 persons live in Ayn Kenya. There are roughly 1,100 persons living here today, the service bus driver tells me, while fireworks blasting in the open skies behind us to mark the pride and success of high school exam results. Iltawjihi. I wonder if this word is rooted in tawajjuh, direction or to direct. Her husband, furious that she would curse an entire village the way that she did, as if to make up for her own loss, in return would go on to curse her, for it is the will of God. You banished the innocent in your quest for revenge, he tells her. May your own flesh fall off your bones. Days came and days went, and this woman's flesh, Sophie, fell from her bones until she passed away. May she rest in peace. Um, can you situate in Kenya for us today, Jemana, where this water walk is taking place? Yes, I mean, this water walk... First, I think I need to mention that it's part of a current residency I'm doing with Saki Art Science Agriculture, and they're situated in, uh, in Kenya, and they're situated on a valley, which is part of, um, it's um, it's an, a home residence for the Zalatimo family, and they are working with the Zalatimo family to rewild this entire um, hilltop where Saki are situated. So when they invited me for the residency, I, I, I felt it was a um, perfect opportunity to continue my research um, with water, water and the spiritedness um, within nature and especially within, within water um, and folktales in Palestine then and now. So the water walk that you've just heard is in fact inspired by several walks that I 
been trying to do as part of the residency with several members of the community, different um, individuals. Some of them are, are in fact um, young women students or graduates from the Birsaid University. And this particular walk that, um, that you heard is inspired by um, an elderly woman from, from the village in Juma who is always her and her husband are always very eager to um, collaborate and take us on walks and try to find, because my, my intention is to find where the natural, to try and search where the natural water sources are in the hilltop. So where Saki are located, for example, is about midway um, in the hilltop and they receive one of the water sources, which is quite, uh, let's say alive, uh, the water source is quite active. And, um, and it's one of the water sources that is um, coming from one main source. So the main source of water on that, on that hilltop is Ayn Abu Adham. And that's where Injuma is taking me and um, a small group of us, the, the, the young ladies that I'm also conducting a workshop with, um, with Saki, the water diviners. And so we're walking together because I wanted to find where the main water source is. And Imjuma said, well, let's just take a walk and try to find it. And on our way, it, so this main water source is, is supposed to be, or is at the top of the, um, the top of this um, mountain. And it's feeding through the mountain down to about four other main um, water points or water sources, one of which is Ayan El Aweni, as the local community call it, from Kenya, um, or Ayan Abul and that's the water source of where Saki are located. And, um, and then there are other water sources, such as Ayan in Romani, or Ayan of the Spring of the Eye of the Pomegranate, and um, and Ayan uh, Elasfura, or the spring of the bird, and we try to find where these water sources are, and then we also try to find stories that are connected, or to remember stories that are connected with these sites, with these waters, and these stories can be, or sometimes are, quite fairy taleish, um, with um, tales of spirits. Um, haunting, or I don't even like to say the word haunting, I probably want to say um, enchanting uh, the place. And sometimes these spirits can be even sacred or holy persons, wise persons that were once living and um, were buried at a specific site where the locals believed um, that the spirit now of this wise or holy person is um, kind of looking after the, the, the place and especially the water source. So the stories would either be very fairy taleish or they would be um, stories, let's say superstition, such as the, the story that Imjuma is telling us as we're walking up the hill, the story of um, why is it that Ayankinia was once believed to only have never any more than 70 residents at one time. And it's because of this a kind of superstitious belief that, and it's a story that almost everyone, at least everyone over 30, still tells uh, uh, today in Ankenia. Um, 
and it's the story of uh, Sophie and her husband, uh, Abu al-Jabbar, and, um, and what happens to them and how his wife curses. So the, this, these are stories that are really situated, um, not necessarily linked to spirit or to water, but they become part of the landscape. So that's what I'm really interested in, in how our stories narrated or remembered or rewoven back into or rewritten back into landscape because they're very much connected with memory and with, um, with our connectedness to, to nature, to homeland, to identity in Palestine, especially. I mean, thank you so much for this, Jermaine. I mean, this is also fascinating to me because I was reading a little bit about Anthemia before our call today. And I, I did, I mean, it was noticeable or I did read that the inhabitants were always you know, we're always like maybe 32 families, 65 families. So it was always a number that was, you know, um, or maybe at some point had reached 100, you know, inhabitants. Mm. But for the most part, it was always like kind of a lower. And I never knew that it was, you know, that there were actually also folk tales and 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 um, and and stories about this. And and for me, this is also something. Um, it, it also related to kind of these folk tales about around the water springs and around the water sources. So it, it seems to me that the the stories and the tales and, and that that are passed down and that, like you said, everybody knows are also directly, I mean, well, maybe not directly, but are are related to also like kind of the environmental and political situations that happen, but they're just kind of passed in different ways and they're which also means that they're thought of in different ways. So I was, yeah, so I was kind of, yeah, curious about the, um, you know, for example, I was, I I, I had read that um, maybe sometimes when a spring is dry or when the water source is dry, um, you know, people say that it's, a, it's a, people talk about it as if it's being like an evil spirit or, or a jinn. Um, but of course, that's also due to, to climate change and environmental changes. And of course, you know, as a direct, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yes. Mm. Yeah, so I was just, I, yeah, so I was just kind of curious about this relationship because, yeah, this relationship to these folk tales and kind of the production of knowledge and the passing of, of knowledge um, that again is, 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 um, is around is around the village and like you said, the relationship to the land and the relationship to to um, to how people live. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, the, the relationship, let's say from 500 years and more beyond, you know, in the past is, is a relationship with nature that isn't so much um, a logical one, but, or it has its own logic because it's, it's um, a relationship where it's in Fallahin, the, the, the peasantry um, community of Palestinians, especially in Nine Kenya, let's say as an example, are um, living with the landscape. There isn't a kind of a hierarchical um, a relationship. And in fact, the only hierarchical relationship, the only power um, within the relationship is, is a power that comes from God. So all the spirits that are talked about and written within stories, 
even the jinn and you know even the good and the, the evil spirits they're also all coming from god they're part of god the one source and even to understand how these relationships um how we communicate with the landscape with the land how we um try to respect the land is through the godly through the sacred and through fearing or through acknowledging that there are spirits protecting and um enchanting and living with us and on this land and it was part of um it was part of our life it was part of our daily life it was part of our community even in the village where i grew up not just in the village of ainkinia and from you know beyond even 500 years uh, ago and of course with the political situation and the demarcation and um you know aggressive cutting out of the land and denying palestinians access to the land and especially to the water source what is also happening is that and what has happened is the um exile from the story as well and the the uh, displaced uh, relationship with um with the sacredness of the water source and the spiritedness of the land and what it can give us so even our relationship let's say i'm a farmer my relationship to the land as a farmer was one in which i would listen to it i would understand what it needs and i would respond to that need and there was never and there was always a community there's the community of my other fellow humans and there's the community of the animal the the community of the non-human as well the spirit all of them all of us working um within you know uh the rightful duty or acting as the responsible beings um the way that god would would have it and the minute that um oppression and occupation uh um cuts uh cuts us away from the land and and the water what it's also doing is that it's cutting us away from the stories that are told around the water and the land and also um cutting us from that sense of connectedness so now it's um you know yes there are spirits that you know we believed haunted these sites and if it was upset with us then it, the the water would would become dry and climate change was definitely and surely and can, continues to be a, a strong component in in that but the climate change is really just one factor operating within who gets authority over land who gets authority over the water source who gets access uh, to the water source i mean i can just give a very brief example of how this main source of water on the hilltop or sakir situated in abadham it's feeding into four or five kind of branching four or five water sources across the valley and the villagers today um are able to share the water source on a on a kind of a time basis so family such and such has access to the water from the spring for 12 hours on Tuesdays another family from the village has access to it so it's it's shared you know what i mean and now and then uh, israeli soldiers from the nearby legal settlements will drive to the ayn to the spring to just check on what is the level of the water and sometimes you know we we wonder on like why are they doing that is it is it because they're going to deny if there's more water and we're not talking about a lot of water as well 
I'm not sure how it is in numbers, I'm sorry, but there's always this other authority now. So it's no longer the authority of God um, over the water. There is still the authority of God because people are still quite religious, um, but there is now the authority of the political oppressor who denies access to the Palestinian villagers um, of water and 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 of land and how you know and and even of harvesting of planting of building there's so much interwoven within that climate change for example may dry out a water source but climate change isn't going to isn't responsible for denying whether you get to build the garden or whether you get to pick your olives this season or not yeah i think that's really i mean i think yeah there's something I think that's why I was also really interested in, in um, and thought it's actually quite important to start the series with your work because um, I I do I definitely do think and and yeah completely agree with you that through these tales and through these stories and through these kind of ways of passing knowledge is is a way that that actually you're right it, it's also a set of relations I mean these changes that are happening are a set of the changing relations whether it's with the authority like you said or whether it's with the land because again of um yeah like maybe kind of more neoliberal aspirations and 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 you know and markets so there's an abandonment to the land so I think these kind of stories are really able to um are able to give us an entry point to what is happening with with our water sources and with our land from from another perspective that doesn't isolate just climate change because yeah again climate change is not in isolation to all these um other things so yeah i think this is really quite important yeah i mean it, it's when we were taking our walk for example um imjuma after telling us the story of um, Abu Jabbar and and you know the curse of that his wife made on, on I mean today I in Kenya the village of Ankenya has definitely more than a hundred people there's about a thousand one hundred people living um, in it but they they come and go but their lifestyle has changed drastically like they've stopped they were for a large part of, of time they were uh, there were many um, shepherds kind of like goat keepers and and this kind of tradition of uh, uh, has disappeared, at least in, in Ankenia. The shepherd that now comes to the village is in fact from Jericho. And, you know, he walks his goats um, and his herd to during the summer months and stays in, in Ankenia. So that also has an effect on, on the climate or on the land and, and the landscape and the growth of plants. Um, and when we were taking our, our walk and we came across the Kaikabe, which traditionally was believed to have been a spirited uh, maple uh, tree, and it's quite ancient. It's it's really maybe a couple of thousand years old. And next to it, there is um, or there was a burial site for one of these wise persons who, for a long time, people believed that he possessed um, this tree and the site. And people would always, you know, once a week on Thursday would go to his site and would light candles for him and say their prayers. And so there are all of these superstitious beliefs around him. And because there were these superstitious beliefs around him, that somehow helped to safeguard the, the, um, the well-being of the natural landscape around his burial site. So that meant that it was always clean. It meant that 
um, even if the water source was present or was dry, if there wasn't enough rain, let's say, still the area was always well maintained. People always approached it with some form of of high uh, respect. And that's something that has, has now with the disbelief in these stories, uh, that's something that has really, um, yeah, you stop seeing that. You know, our relationship with the landscape is has changed very much. Um, and because we've, we've, many of us have stopped, um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know if we've stopped because I don't know if we've even started. I think maybe, yeah, maybe I was one of the last generation of individuals whose stories were told to me and I feel very grateful for that. But today when you, when you approach the spring and, and, you know, you want to kind of raise, you want to say, Oh, I heard that there was a story of such and such on this water um, or this tree. People will, will just say, no, you know, what, what Jabal al what mountain of the, of the goblin, there is no such thing. Like, so people don't believe that anymore. And that's, you know, that's understood. But at the same time, there's a, a real dis, disattachment. So on the one hand, there is climate change. On the other hand, there is political oppression. And on the other hand, there is also us, our, like ourselves, who have um, who have also just stopped you know, telling these stories and therefore have stopped approaching the landscape um, with the same idea or with the same sacredness, level of sacredness, I want to say. If I don't know if sacredness is the right word, but the level of spirituality that we once approached it. And, and I think and I believe that this level of spirituality is what always helped to ensure that we did our best to maintain and to ensure the well-being of everything on that piece of land, human and non-human. We continue to walk. My grandmother told me the story. She lived it 100 years ago. You should hear her tell other tales. She was so wise. Tell me the story of Antar. Look at this oak tree. It's not good. Let me carry your bag. She used to say, and at the time that Israel began its occupation, she used to say, how many countries have been occupied? How many occupiers have fallen? Remember how many have ruled over Palestine? Many. She used to say, this occupation now, in God's will, God willing, inshallah, inshallah, is the last time Palestine will be occupied. I'm curious who may follow. What will return? We arrive at the Kaikab, the maple, Greek strawberry, it's at least 2,000 years old. Here is his grave, the first of the property owners. Don't be afraid, my child. She speaks to her grandchild who's accompanying, accompanying us on our walk. You see here the remains where his body lay, the first property owner, right below the great maple. You see where all of us will remain and will return back into the earth as we came. We come to pray here. Inside, we find traces where oil was preserved. A clay pot perhaps stood here, she tells me. Inside the small dwelling, cave-like. God Almighty, we used to pray. Soldiers hid here, look. Do you see this opening? It's like a window. 
The grave dwelling has been ransacked. They took what they could find. I'm a little bit confused. I'm not sure if it's a grave or a storage room. And now there is only a cave, empty with only the words from a dear woman that I'm walking with, words to comfort and honor the memory of what was, what is no more. Abu Najem is here. It's here that he is buried. He's the property owner. And Abu Anain, he lived here too, but many years before. He was a holy person and it's believed that he spirited this water source, this place, this great maple. I heard that a man from the village proclaimed he would cease to light oil lamps for the holy man. Yes, the entire village ceased to light. There is a reason, or there was. What was the reason? A young woman hiding in the cave from her attackers was not protected, you see. It was the duty of the spirit of the spring to protect her, but he did not. In fact, he had not been seen exercising his powers for some time, and the villagers stopped offering him their prayers and their oil lamps. Can you imagine? That's the will of God. If you observe the multiple branches of the maple, almost tentacle-like, twisting, pale, crimson, you may believe... You may believe that an oil lamp was found in the mouth of a wolf lying dead by the spring the following day. Wolf, then. Wolf was sacrificed for faith of haunted spirit. They dressed in white like angels. They appeared to the thieves, and thieves ran away in fright. The Kaikup. Others who passed by before us have engraved their names and the names of their lovers upon the surface of the maple. If you believe, one shouldn't inflict harm upon the tree or its remarkable branches. One should not cause carvings and wound its surface in any manner, or else she, the tree, would inflict great punishment. Why do we write our names into the trees, drawing our heart-shaped outlines with initials inside them, I wonder? I look at Mjama's face. It's almost as if she is 16 years old, not 60. And it's almost as if she is in love. And she is. After a pause, Mjama confides that as a child she was passing by the tree with her grandmother because they used to pass here often. And she hears an unidentifiable sound. During that time, the holy site of the spring was not abandoned or dried out as it is now. Wahammaru, she says. Wahammaru. The sound she heard was a humming, and it went for six times like this. as if warning us not to pick the plants at the foot of the tree. Onions were regularly planted here, she continues to tell. The wild loof. The wild loof plant naturally grows across the hill and it's medicinal, she tells me. Curing all forms of cancers, she says. 
dry it and boil it and drink from its miracle. Be aware, though, it is a bit spicy. Pointing to another green leaf, palm-sized and rooted to the earth. This is the tuff leaf. Cook it as you would vine leaves and taste how delicious it can be. In a world where time did not stand still, we were free from diseases, living from the earth's secrets and waters as we did, free. We hung Menadil across the oak tree's branches, Abul Ajami or Abul Nijim, they witnessed us doing so, near the holy sites and springs. And then the uprising came, and we lost our sense of security and our way of heritage. Look here, here's another cave, where we possibly may have hid. It seems to me that there are plenty of places to hide across this valley. We pass by a young man guarding the spring. He is an animal talker. I've witnessed his command of the animals, large and small. I'm made aware of another guardian, Joseph. He is the craftsman of the earth. His knowledge on the hidden springs and his commitment to protect them makes him the last of his kind, a water diviner and protector, Sayyid al-Asr. As we continue to ascend the hills, the first to be aware of our presence are the birds and the hissing grasshoppers. We don't see them, but we hear them, and we move past them. We also move past rocks and fallen branches, rocks moved and turned over by falling rainwater, although there is no rainwater. Every season has its offering, she says. We stop for water and I attempt not to fall. Fennel, Shomar, skirts the pathway. Lemons are always in season. When we reach Diana and Medromani, the spring of the mother of pomegranates, the hillside is always fertile and green, despite the dry and rocky pathway. I, of course, don't recognize any herbs or berries or plants or insects. There is an orange butterfly that I feel is following us. Here, take this and your throat infection will be cured. We pass Hajkanaan's garden, which is gated, to keep out the wild boars, he once said. I've been inside his garden and I've seen how he uses the water from the spring, Aenemirumani, to feed his grafting tree experiments. What will happen after his passing, I wonder, but I don't speak it out loud. Who will inherit his knowledge of the earth's happiness? Some have burned the earth, scorched the borders of their territory in order to prevent fires, snakes, and scorpions. During your walk, you speak with Imjama of, of the, or Imjama speaks to you of the plants, of the different plants that you see on the path and of the different sounds um, of, yeah, some of these stories. Um, and I was interested in kind of understanding from you, like how, how on these walks, like these, these for her and for you, I think also these plants and their relationship to, to the land and to the water sources are 
their markers, they're in their own right, like maybe demar certain demarcations. And of course, there are demarcations that are changing and that are that grow and that die and that are picked, maybe, and that are or that stay or are that neglected. So I was wondering if you can say a little bit more about these kind of like, um, yeah, maybe like natural or like non-human markers of the land and of territory and of paths and of journeys uh, during your walk. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Dream, because I one of the things that it became I became aware of and I and I realized and I wasn't aware of that before when we were walking is that I always expected or I felt throughout, you know, because I've been kind of researching the same idea of the stories and water for a long time. And I never realized until that day when we took the walk with Mshuma and Abu Juma is what I always thought was that this connectedness with nature had has now been kind of um, we've been you know cut away from that, but taking the walk and with Imjuma pointing to every plant to every signifier that she would see as a marker of the season or of what it may cure, um, of, you know, it made me realize that wait we are still connected very much to the landscape and to the. Um, to its gifts, let's say, that are the unwritten, the oral uh, gifts. So although the, the plants may not be associated directly with water spirits or with folk stories, um, you know, thousand-year-old folk stories, the, the connection we still have today with plants, despite the, uh, regardless of um, whether or not they have a superstitious value, that, that, that doesn't matter. What does matter is that there is still this connection with um, the the plants that um, that are naturally grown. So there's some that are planted, obviously, such as the lemon trees and the pomegranate trees, and there are some herbs and plants um, that grow still there on the valley, quite wildly so. And and you know, part of it is rainwater fed. Part of it is also the spring water uh, fed, but. I think walking with her and her pointing to the various um, uh, plants and their medicinal um, attributes, or even just recognizing, you know, if we pass by a lemon tree, you just, you recognize it, you salute it, you know, you say, and I've, I've developed quite a, um, a silly habit of doing that now, where if I'm walking up the hill on my own, I'm, I'm always talking to the, to the trees or, you know, that's kind a, of acknowledge acknowledging them. <laughs> that's a beautiful habit, not a silly habit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what what I realized is I was always expecting that this was going to be a walk where we're going to talk about loss and how we're not, um, you know, relating these folk stories or folk narratives anymore. But I um, I was surprised because I felt no, there is still there is still hope walking with her, and the hope was that. There, there is another oral narrative that's just as relevant, you know, hearing, hearing birds, seeing the lemon tree, seeing the fennel wildly grown. I mean, all of that made me realize that there is still a connectedness, that just simply the acknowledgement of these um, um, natural um, plants and, and animals that are living together with us there on the valley, I think that that's already a huge thing. And, and I think despite um, everything else, let's say, despite the loss or despite the, the displacement, 
um, and despite annexation of memory and of stories that are connected with Palestinian identity, there and despite climate change, um, you know, the usefulness of the land was and is still practiced by many and, um, and, and the ritual. So there is a seasonal ritual. You know when you know, you're going to go to the valley to pick meramiye, the sage. You know when you're going to, um, you're, you're planning to have the week of when you're going to plan, uh, pick the olives. You know, and, you know, obviously, again, there are still many, uh, some limitations on what you can pick, again, because of political, um, um, you know, uh, authority denying Palestinians what they can and cannot pick, such as za'atar and, and other um, uh, plants that are grown in the valley and that were very much accessible before. But despite that, there are still many plants that are grown wild, which, um, which are accessed and which are picked and which are recognized, acknowledged, and the ritual around them is still very much alive. Um, and I was really pleased to see that walking with Imshumah that day. You know, there's a, I mean, I think it's the, it's the last line um, that, you know, that we heard before, um, right now in the walk, and that really kind of stayed with me. And it's really like, it really, really resonates with me when she, when I think Imshumah is telling you that some have burned the earth, scorched the borders of their territory in order to prevent fire, snakes, and scorpions. And I think I think this is kind of a further reassurance that in order to kind of protect the earth or continue or, or protect the land that obviously is so precious to us, we can continue to live on it. We have to rid ourselves from, again, these kind of like unnatural or man-made demarcations of territory. Um, mm. And like much of, you know, like, again, I guess much of the, the as the subject of, of this um or as the guiding star of this of this podcast, which is this you know shifting nature of the aridity lines that indicates like an encroaching danger, um, and so so I think what you're doing with Njamaa here is like kind of it's almost like a practice of counter mapping, because you have these but with nature with plants with water with sound with birds and I think that this is really something that's absolutely um, necessary and 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 you know, the insistence on continuing to pass on this knowledge is something that I think is, is really incredibly important. Thanks, Reem. Yeah, I, I felt it too. And I think that, I think the more we practice or engage with the landscape and the more that we find how each one of us has a responsibility. I may not know how to plant uh, uh, a lemon tree or I may not, you know, but I still have a responsibility um, even before my sense of responsibility to Palestine, what is my responsibility just as a human to, to, to the earth? And I think that there, you know, there is, we, each one of us has that uh, responsibility. And, and I find more and more, I'm asking myself that question of what can I do? Um, and, you know, even as you said, I think that at this stage, yes, I, I am kind of conducting these walks. I'm conducting the water diviner workshops um, and asking, you know, what what does it mean to divine um, the landscape? What does it mean to remap? So divine is another word I've kind of, I'm using to replace map uh, and, and remapping. But it's the same thing because I I think each one of us has the potential and has that, that, that possibility 
to take um, to make a choice and to take uh, responsibility, regardless of you know how difficult our situation or or our inaccessibility to our land is. Um, even if we start with something small, that ritual of of doing small things will grow, will will generate, um, will echo out into you know more stories and and. And it's so it's so vital in today's times and for future um, to yeah to tell stories and uh, to continue telling them and to share them and to find how we're connected within the stories how are we living within these stories so we're not just storytellers but we really are recipients and and um, contributors to the stories. I think, can you tell us a little bit more about the water divination workshops? I think this, is, and I, this idea of divinate of, of, yeah, of divination as a, as a, uh, as a practice of, again, like counter mapping or, or another way of mapping, I think is really fascinating. Yeah, the divination isn't so much to do with magic. It's to do with how um, traditionally there were, um, individuals who were tasked with uh, divining water, therefore finding water. They used uh, water uh, divining rods to, to find water. And the divining rods very often were very, were just um, made from very uh, simple material and they would walk with them uh, holding these sticks. And when these sticks start to vibrate, that's how you knew that underneath or very near uh, the, the earth's surface, um, one could find a source of water. So I'm using this title as a metaphor for how do we find water today? Not in the traditional sense of, of um, using um, the, the wooden sticks or other tools, but we're using tools such as uh, wa uh, walks and the continuity of walks, such as ritual of trying to collect stories folk tales and trying to rewrite them so that they are connected with our contemporary lives. And that's what I'm doing with the Water Diviner workshops. So we are taking the walks, we're, we're finding tools to work with nature, to work with each other, to work with the community in the village. And, um, and it's a very slow process or it will be a slow process. And it's also, by the way, it's also part of my PhD research um, at the Slade School of Fine Art. And you know, it's a kind of a, um, uh, a process where I'm not just there as a researcher, but I'm also, or as a diviner, um, or as a guide to how to, to divine, how to find water, uh, and and what you know, where does water situate itself in our lives today, whether in a folk tale or in reality or not. But I'm also there as um, someone who I hope is also able to. Um, give to that community um, through story and through through the power of um, a kind of guiding the individuals that I'm working with to um, write their own stories and create a practice and a continuity of um, story making and um, and storytelling and that's what water divining is um, so it's it's not storytelling in the sense of uh, fairy tales or folk tales but it is storytelling in the sense of all forms of stories, stories that may connect folktales with contemporary lives, as I said before. Um, and I want to be able to 
when I, you know, if and when I do exit this project or I exit this, this landscape, I don't want to really exit it ever. I can't imagine it. But when I do step out, let's say I want to be, um, I hope that I'm, you know, what I've left is, is, a, is a kind of um, tools that others can also use and practice so that there's always this um, development or the process is continuous and it doesn't, like water, continues to flow. Um, sorry for the, <laughs> the kind of funny uh, metaphor, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I think I think if we learned all of us to to live or to learn from water, I think that you know that's a start. So that's what we're trying to do. We come upon two women resting from the climb. Peace be upon you. Peace be upon you. Seated as they are out in the open upon a massive slab of stone, they appear to me majestic, seated on their thrones. Eyebrows drawn in darkened, thin, tattooed line, gracing her face. She imagines that the Romans might have passed through here, crossing the valley and drinking from the natural waters, gifting the earth, spilling gently out of rocks and wells. She writes them into the story, into the timeline territory. She wonders if Rumman, the name of one of the springs, has actually nothing to do with pomegranates and everything to do with the Roman wanderers. Every time I walk through here, between one spring to another, I envision creatures forming out of rocks and shadows, but not out of clouds. The clouds have their own occupiers. I'm pleased you see the formations also, even if they're different from the ones I see. Horses, faces, rabbits. Above us in the sky, airplanes have resumed their tracks, invading empty surfaces, new ones, for they never used to cross like this in such sound and quantity. When these planes move across the sky over us, all manners of creatures on the land compete with the monstrous roar of the airplane. Roosters, donkeys, birds, even the wind suddenly makes its presence known across our faces and masked silences. I'm collecting small stones along the way, conscious and feeling guilty as I do so, for perhaps it's not my place to move them out, carry them between my fingers. But there's something about them I admire. I admire their resilience and their connectedness to the earth of time, much like the ant before me now, carrying five times its body weight in the form of a shell of a sunflower seed. It's only water that has shaped these stones, these footprinted plant-grown hills and rocks. It's only water and its collaboration with time through God's will. The sound of the water and the enclave, the well, it is a well, the source when we finally reach it, several hours have passed. All I hear is wind. Yes, there is no sound of water. I hear the wind as well. We shout out our names into the womb of the well deep. Oh, my body is free. 
Free as the bird that is flying Free as the golden bush Freed by the rays of the sun Oh, my body is free Just as the spirit is willed Freed through the flowing of water Coming from springs of time And free from the feet of time Freed from memory Oh, my body is free Free as the bird that is flying, free as the golden bush freed by the rays of the sun. Oh, my body is free, just as the spirit is willed, freed through the flowing of water coming from springs of time, and free from the feet of time, freed forever in memory. That was the first episode of Heredity Lines. Special thanks to our guest, Jumana Emil Abboud. Heredity Lines is commissioned by TBA21 Academy and co-produced with Radio Maazov. It was conceived by Rim Shadid and Barbara Kasavekia as part of the current three Mediterraneans, thus wave common pairs after Atel Adnan. Edited and hosted by Rim Shadid. Introduction and credits voiceover, Jinan Shahaya. Sound editor, Mosh Air, produced by Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org or subscribe with your podcast provider.